All right, well, all of you should have um, the God's Transformation of Man booklet. We're going to be talking about uh, God's transformation of man, what God does to save, what God does to sanctify, and what God does to secure the Christian. And so we're going to be looking at this booklet here for the next two weeks, if you have this. Um, This is something that we developed at Grace Bible Church, and it is something that we've developed so that um, we can hand out both to the men and the women, the men here in Build and the women in Wellspring, and again, like I mentioned earlier, our, our heart and our goal in this is that the people at Grace Bible Church have a common understanding of what it is, um, what takes place when God saves a person, what takes place after God saves a person and God begins to sanctify that person, and what takes place when God secures that person eternally. And what we're going to notice is that there are three sections to our pamphlet. On the left side, we have a section that says the unregenerate man. In the center section, we have the regenerate man. And on the right side, we have the heavenly man. Today, we're going to talk through the unregenerate man, what's true about the guy um, in his natural born condition, what's true about a person from birth. Um, We're going to be talking about the regenerate man, what God does to save and what is true about them. And then next time, we're going to talk about the heavenly man, how it is that uh, a man goes from this age and this state until the next age because we know that life is not over when we breathe our last here that we're actually eternal beings and God created us for eternity so uh, what we're going to do is just make our way through and uh, pray that God uses this time to to bless us Uh, so what we'll notice as we look at this chart is uh, you'll see a guy on the on the left side at the top of the chart you'll notice that uh, he's a dark color Uh, that's intended to represent sin That's intended to represent the fact that he's uh, completely sinful. Um, What you do when you see the middle section is you see a man who uh, is becoming increasingly sanctified um, after his conversion, and that's represented by him starting to become more and more uh, golden or yellow here. That's intended to show that he's becoming more sanctified. When you look over on the right side, the heavenly man over here is entirely golden or yellow, um, and he has no sin within him. So we're going to be looking at that um, today. Our, our goal here is that we understand that um, we want to understand who we are in Christ um, as a believer. We want to understand the, the natural condition that we were born into, who we are in Christ and how we came to be where we are um, so that we understand what kind of person we are today based on what kind of person we were and what God has done to save us. So let's take a look at the, the first side, the unregenerate man. And the the general distinction and the discussion and the representation of this man is that first and foremost, he is without Christ. This is a person who is born without Christ. In the natural born condition, a person is absolutely without Christ. And in today's message today, most of what we're going to see is just scriptures. We're going to be going through lots and lots of scriptures today that just point to um, what God says about us in each of these areas. We're going to start in Romans chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Romans chapter 8? We're going to be using that um, as the foreground and the the basis to understand who a man is in his natural born condition. Uh, Paul has been teaching for seven chapters about how it is that God saves. By the time you get to chapter 5, you you get to God's justification. When you get to a sinful man, when you get to... Chapter 6, you see the, the sinful man and, and the, the Christian and how the Christian man has a new relationship to sin. And in chapter 7, you see how the Christian has a new relationship to the law. 
But in chapter 8, Paul describes the distinction between the unbeliever and the believer, and he talks about them together at the same time. So what we're going to do is we're going to start in Romans 8, we're going to read verses 5 through 8. And uh, this is really helpful because we're looking at Paul's discussion of the unbeliever right next to the believing man. Paul writes, in starting in verse 5, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So what we see here is the unregenerate man is being contrasted with the regenerate man. At the beginning of verse 5, we see those who are according to the flesh. And we want to make sure we understand who Paul is talking about there. I think we know that he's talking about unbelievers, but there's something really significant about his use of the word flesh. In my former condition, I was according to the flesh. And the flesh is not Paul's description of our muscles and our tissue and our skin and our bones. Rather, the flesh is that which is sinfully weak and falters before God and loves to be that kind of person before God. And that's the important thing, is that someone who is in the flesh loves to be in the condition that they are in, sinfully weak before God. And to live according to that is to live by the standard of my own natural condition. I actually live by that standard. I live by the standard that is sinfully weak and that falters before God. So that's what it means to be in the flesh. And then the rest of the verse begins to talk about what the person who is in the flesh actually does. And we see that in the next part of the verse. The first thing they do is they set their minds on the things of the flesh. So in my former condition, I set my mind on the things of the flesh. And my mind is who I am inwardly before God. It's who I am as a man who thinks, who I am as a man who ponders, who I am as a man who meditates. When a person does those things, that's what they are. That's what they use their mind for. But I took my thinking self and I set it according to the standard of my own fallen nature, that which was sinfully weak and faltering before God. So I take the mind that God gave me and I use it according to my own fallen nature and according to that standard. What we want to notice here is that there is no conflict. There is absolutely no conflict whatsoever between the mind and the flesh. The person who is in the flesh has a a desire for the things of the flesh and their mind is in perfect accord with that. So the first thing that the person does who's in the flesh is that they set their mind on the things of the flesh. And then verse 6 tells us things that we need to understand about the result of that and the consequence of that. And Paul writes that the mind that is set on the flesh is death. And death here isn't speaking of physical death. It's speaking of a spiritually dead condition before God. That all of my thoughts lead me only to a a position of spiritual deadness and emptiness before God. And Paul writes about this elsewhere in the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes, you were dead in your transgression and sins. So the mind and the flesh, they work together, and the result is somebody who is spiritually dead before God. And so that's the condition that anybody is in from birth. They are spiritually dead before God. When we think about young people, we think about young children, I have a grandchild who's very, very young. She's three months old. Um, She was born with uh, 
the spiritual condition that she was born into is one where she's spiritually dead. And in order to be alive, she needs to be made alive. That's the same condition that I was born into, that every one of us was born into. That's the condition that my kids were born into. So we learn that the mind that is set on the flesh is death, but we also learn other things about it. It's also that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God. It has a particular disposition towards God. It's hostile towards him. And it does not subject itself to the law of God. In my dead condition, I'm I'm only hostile to God's law. I love my own self-rule. I don't like and I I reject the rule of another over me. In our natural-born condition, we just love our own self-rule. We have confidence in our own self-rule. We have trust in our own self-rule. And we reject anything that fights against that. And that's the ultimate issue and the ultimate definition of of someone who is who is not a follower of Christ is that um, they're hostile to the law of God and its authority over a person. And the next part of that verse tells us why. It says because they're not even able to do so. The unregenerate man is not able to subject himself to the law of God. He's not even actually able to do that. And that's why he's hostile toward God. That's his natural born condition. Um, and it may be that a person is very docile, they're, they're nice, they're very, very pleasant, they're generally a good person to be around. There's lots of really great things about them. But the fundamental issue about the person as it relates to their heart, as it relates to the, uh, the condition of their heart and their own self-rule is that they love their self-rule and that makes them hostile towards the law of God which has authority over them. And the, and the verse 8 tells us what the consequence of that is in their relationship to God. Verse 8 tells us that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The reason why they can't please God is because they're hostile toward the law of God, God's good and perfect law that he gave to us. So Paul is talking about a person who's in the flesh, and he's saying they, they can't please God whatsoever. And that's because of who they are in their natural-born condition. So putting a change of environment in front of that person, taking them out of one environment and placing them in another environment, doesn't actually change that person. It just changes their surroundings. It doesn't make them able to please God. Giving a person a new set of rules to follow doesn't change who they are in their natural born condition. Neither will a new set of friends or a new set of circumstances or a new job or anything else. Uh, all of them are worthless in terms of changing the person because none of them able to, are able to address the heart condition of a person. And they're powerless as long as one stays in that condition. So what we want us to understand here is that in their natural-born condition, a person is, is not able to please God. They're naturally opposed to God in all that they do. So that's kind of the basis and the foundation for which we're going to look at um, several of the passages that are listed on the unregenerate man section. So we're just going to walk through some of these and see what God's word says about the man. So he's in a position where he's hostile towards God. He loves his own self-rule. He will not subject himself to the law of God. So what we're going to do is work our way through on the first panel uh, the passages that are listed there. We're going to work our way through them and I'll make some comments on on each one of these. We're going to start in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes um, when he's describing in chapter 2 how a person is dead in their transgressions and sins. He writes in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 describing the, the unbeliever and how they are in the world. He says, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh 
we indulged the desires of the flesh and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So that person is characterized by being dead in their sin. If we back up to the first couple of verses before that, Paul writes, and you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, according to the spirit who is working in the sons of disobedience. The idea there is that a person is, is um, spiritually dead. He says here in verse 3 that they were indulging the desires of their flesh and their mind and they were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And so this person is dead in their sin. They walk in their sin. They live in the lust of their flesh. They're a child of wrath and they have no hope and they're without God. So that's the condition that man is born into. That's really important because when we talk about life in Christ and we talk about when we came to Christ and what it is that God did to save us, it's important for us to understand the condition that we were in when God did the saving work in us. So it's important for us to see that. We'll look at some other verses uh, that describe some of the same things. Let's take a look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. If you have your Bibles, just turn there for a minute. Just a few pages over. Paul's writing to the church in Colossae, and he writes, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness, and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So the person is actually in a domain of darkness. And the darkness there relates to the ability to see God's truth, the ability to understand God's truth. Um, The unbeliever is in a condition where they don't have the ability to see the truth of who God is, the truth of who they are before God. So that's also true about a person. Not only are they indulging the desires in their mind and their flesh, but they're not able to see who they truly are before God. They're in the domain of darkness. Then let's turn to Titus chapter 3. Paul talks about other aspects of the unbeliever and what is true about them. He describes some of the outward characteristics of that person in their natural born condition. And Paul says in Titus 3.3, We also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Notice the disposition of this person. Uh, There is absolutely no desire whatsoever in this person to please God. They're disobedient. They're deceived. They're enslaved to all of the different lusts of the world. And they spend their life in malice and envy. And Paul is talking about what happens at a heart level there. If we go back to Colossians, we can look in uh, chapter 1, verse 21. Uh, Paul talks about how this person is alienated from God. Colossians 1.21 says, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, and then Paul goes on. It's important to see that he's talking about a person who is actually in a position of alienation towards God. But then we look at their orientation of this person. Their orientation, again, is that they're hostile in their mind towards God and that their activity is, is consistent with that. They're engaged in evil deeds. So it's really good for us to understand that. That is exactly what God does. We'll go to Romans chapter 6. It's good for us to look at verses 17 through 23 and see what God does. Paul is talking here about the new relationship that a believer has to sin. But in his description of that, he's describing how the the unbeliever is trapped in their sin and, 
and how they're enslaved. enslaved. Paul says, in, starting in verse 17 of Romans 6, Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So right off we see the person is a slave of sin. And we also see that they were freed from that and they became slaves of righteousness. So you see God's kindness and God's grace. And Paul goes on to talk in the following verses about the the way in which a person is a slave of sin. And so Paul is repeating the terminology again and again and again. He wants to to drive home exactly what was true. If you look at verse 19, um, Paul says, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness. Now he goes on and gives them an instruction as believers. But what the the unbeliever is doing is they are presenting themselves to impurity and to lawlessness. and, And the result is that it only increases. There's a greater and greater and greater lawlessness in the the life of the unbeliever. So what happens when you're looking at someone who's been a believer or been an unbeliever their whole life? You're looking at someone who is not only enslaved to sin and in lawlessness, but that's increasing and increasing and increasing in its nature. And we see at the end of this that, that the, the wage of that, the wage of that sin is death in verse 23. So this is the condition the person is, is in. Their, their sin is there. It's growing. They're growing in their lawlessness. And the, the reward for that, the penalty for that is, is death. And so it's important that we understand that. It's important that we see that. Um, let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 17 to 19. And we're going to look at what Paul does as he describes the Gentiles. There's another verse here that helps us just see what it was that this person is, that the unbeliever is characterized by. And what we're going to be looking at here is their understanding and their ability to comprehend So Paul says, starting in in verse 17 of chapter 4, So this I say, and I affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding and excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and having become callous, having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. You look at verse 17, their mind is actually futile. They're living in the futility of their mind. In verse 18, their their understanding is darkness. It's darkened. And in verse 18, also, they have a hardness of heart. And that they've given themselves over to sensuality. That's the, the result of all of those things, is that they actually give themselves over to something that enslaves them. And you'll notice here that everything is in agreement. There's no friction. There's no... Uh, conflict. There's no disagreement whatsoever. Everything is moving in a, in a direction that is opposed to God and opposed to who he is and what God has said is right and good. If you look at Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, something that's really important for us to understand here um, is that not only is that person darkened, not only is that person enslaved, not only does that person have a hard heart, but we see something else that's true about that person as well. And that is that they are enemies of Christ and the cross of Christ. Paul writes in verse 18, For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. 
And in the following verses, Paul goes and he contrasts that with the, the Christian whose citizenship is in heaven and that person is waiting for the return of Christ. And then at that time, they will receive a body that's a, a resurrection body uh, by the authority that Christ has. But here, the person who is not a believer is described as being one who is an enemy of Christ. So they're not actually just walking along in greater and greater sin in their own life but they're an enemy of Christ. They're opposed to Christ. They're against Christ in everything that Christ does. So there's a couple other verses there that are good for us to look at, but I'll, I'll skip over those for the sake of time. But the thing that's most important for us to understand is the condition that this person is in. This person is in an unmixed sinful condition. They're in a condition that is unmixed and completely sinful. Uh, they're in death, and so there's no spiritual life. They're in hostility towards God. They're in rebellion against God. And there's no disagreement between their flesh and their mind. There's no large conflict going on at all. There's no uh, fight against sin. They're unable not to sin. They're unable to please God. All of these things are true about the person. They're dominated by their sin and they're enslaved to it. And sin rules all of that person's faculties. And that person's actually an enemy of God. And they're under God's wrath and judgment. And this is what the New Testament calls the old man. This is what we're referring to here as the unregenerate man. That's the condition that, that everybody is in from birth on. And the reason why I spent so long on this and going over so many of these passages is that it's very important for us to understand that, that in that condition, there is nothing that man can do in his own condition. There is nothing that he can do to help himself in that condition that the only one who can change that man's condition and the course of that man's life is God. Because the man by himself, he's becoming increasingly enslaved. He's pursuing further lawlessness. His heart is becoming increasingly hard. There is no way that that man can actually save himself. The only one that can save that person is God. So at Grace Bible Church, when we talk about um, a person coming to Christ, we want to make sure that we have the understanding that what takes place there is that God does something in the life of the unbeliever. God rescues the unbeliever and does something for the unbeliever that they could never do for themselves. And we want to make sure that we have a, a clear understanding about that. So what we're going to do now is we're going to talk about the regeneration event. As you look at the, the three sections on your pamphlet, they describe the, the three conditions of man. There is an unregenerate man, there is a regenerate man, and there's a heavenly man. But there are transitional events that take place by which a person moves from being the unregenerate man to the regenerate man. So we're going to look at the, the regeneration event. And what, what we're going to focus there on is the gospel and what God does. Um, God's answer and God's solution to the condition that man is in that we just described and spent so much time looking at is God actually doesn't work with the man to give him something that's a little bit different. God actually changes that person and makes him into a completely different person. And he does that by giving them new life. It's not as if this person becomes acceptable in God's sight by being the same person that they were with a few minor changes. God actually gives them new life. And that's why we call it regeneration, because they're generated once again. And so we're going to be talking about the gospel, and we're going to be talking about two ways to view the gospel and to see the gospel there's lots of ways you can describe it, but two ways that we're going to speak of this morning um, are, are here on our notes. And one of them is the idea of adoption through propitiation. 
And adoption is the process by which a child becomes a part of a family to which they don't naturally belong. And so what God does is he takes the unbeliever who does not belong in God's family because they're opposed to God, they're hating God, they're enemies of the cross, and God makes them a part of his family. And he does that through propitiation. And propitiation is the satisfaction of God's wrath. So God can bring the sinner into his family because Jesus satisfied the Father's wrath against that person. So one short summary of the gospel is adoption through propitiation. And that is the way in which God takes the unregenerate man and makes them regenerate. So the idea there has to do a lot with the person's identity. They're outside of the family of God, and God brings them into his family, and he does it through the sacrifice of his son at the cross. So that's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it that we like to describe here, and it's described elsewhere as well, is penal substitutionary atonement. The idea here is those three words is first that there's a penalty. There's a penalty that needs to be paid because God is a just God. He is a good judge, and he judges sin. So instead of having the the, the believer pay that penalty themselves, God takes the, the perfect substitute, his son, and has his son satisfy uh, his wrath by serving that penalty and experiencing that penalty himself. So you have the idea of a penalty being applied, and it's being applied to a substitute, and that substitute is Christ. And the result of that is atonement, being brought into one and brought into unity with Christ. So there is a penalty for my sin. Christ paid that penalty in my place, and in doing so, God has brought me into a peaceful relationship with himself. So you have this idea of adoption through propitiation, which talks about bringing a person into the family of God. And you have the idea of penal substitutionary atonement, which talks about the penalty that Christ paid in place of the guilty to bring a person to God. So you have family identity that's changing. And in the first idea, and the second idea is the idea of the penalty that's actually being paid. And they're both good short summaries of what takes place when God saves. So if you're wondering how to describe the gospel, how to describe the work of God to save, those are two phrases that are very, very helpful. Very helpful to think about when we think about what God did to actually save people. So there's scripture that talks about the the different pieces of the regeneration event. So we're going to look at, uh, the rest of our time, we're going to look at the components of the regeneration event and the benefits of it. Because we want to make sure we understand exactly what took place at regeneration. It wasn't just that God waved some foo-foo dust over something and a person becomes a believer. There are actually clear, distinct things that God took and God did through the person of Christ at the cross and what God gives a person. So what we're going to do here is we're going to look at the the components. These are things that happen um, once and for all. They're accomplished by God for the believer at conversion. These are things that God does on a one-time basis that are permanent. And the first thing that God does is he gives new birth or new life. He makes a new creation. And there's several different references there. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. So if you would just turn there in your Bibles. The first three verses of Ephesians 2 talk about how a person is dead in their transgression and sin, how they're hostile towards God how they're indulging the lusts of their mind and their flesh. But then we see verses 4 and 5, and we see what God does in response to that. Verses 4 and 5 say, But God, being rich in mercy 
because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So the person who is spiritually dead, God makes them spiritually alive. So that's the first thing that God does, is he actually makes the person alive. He gives them new life. Then God actually takes that person and he sets that person apart. He doesn't leave them where they were in their sin. He actually sets them apart. And we're talking about sanctification here. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul's writing to the church in Corinth and he he describes the church with sanctification language. He says at the beginning of his letter, to the opening of his letter, after he identifies himself, he says, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. The word sanctified means to be set apart. So what God does is it, at conversion is not only does he give a person new life, but he sets that person apart into a new category, takes them out of the category they were in before of being unregenerate, and he sets them apart for himself. So there's the idea there of being set apart. That's what sanctification is getting at. It's a one-time permanent activity. The next thing that God does is he declares a person to be righteous. We have no righteousness of our own before God in our unbelieving, unregenerate state. And God demands perfect righteousness. So what God does is he declares that person to be righteous. We see that in Romans chapter 3, verse 24. We are justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Justification is the process by which God actually declares a person to be righteous. When God gives a person faith to believe in Christ, that faith, God sees in that person the faith that he gave them. And on the basis of that person having faith, God declares that person to be righteous. He declares them to have the thing that they need, righteousness, to be in a relationship with him. So what that does is that puts a person into right standing with God. Justification, the, the word there, is being, is being brought into alignment with. Uh, for those of us who are old enough to remember typewriters, when you talk about a typewriter, they have this idea of being left justified. You hit the, the return and it goes all the way over to the left side, and it's, it's the, that's where things are aligned. The idea of justification here is being brought into line with God's standard, just like when you're typing a letter, you, you have a, a firm left side of your margin. And so that's what God does. He brings someone into line with him by declaring them to be righteous because of the faith that they have in him. And what God does then is he imputes his righteousness into that person. And we see that in in verse uh, 21 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I want us to turn there so we can see this. This is a very familiar verse. It's a verse that we all understand. But it helps us to see how it is that God actually um, declares a person to be righteous. And there is an exchange that is taking place in this verse, and it's really good for us to see what this exchange is. On the one hand, you have man's sin, and on the other hand, you have Christ's righteousness, and those are being transferred from one direction to the other. Um, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and he says, God made him, that's Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So God made Christ to be sin. So Christ, when he was at the cross, he took the sin of all those who would believe into his body at the cross. Everything that I would do from the year I was born until the year when I die, 
that was offensive to God, God made that a part of Christ. He planted that and put that on Christ at the cross. So 1930 years before uh, I was born, Christ was suffering for my sin. And then what this says is that God took him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So Christ gets the sin of those for whom he dies and those for whom Christ dies receive Christ's sin. So that's imputed righteousness. So God actually makes Christ to be our sin so that we might get the righteousness of Christ. So when a person is righteous before God, they are righteous not because of themselves. They're actually righteous with the righteousness of Christ. The right way to view that and to see that and to think about that is that righteousness is a robe. It's a cloak that a person wears, and it's not their own. It's, it's a cloak that belongs to Christ. So when God looks at a believer, they're wearing that cloak of righteousness. God sees the righteousness of his own son, and he's very, very pleased with that. When he looks at the unbeliever, the unbeliever doesn't have that cloak. They don't have that robe of righteousness around them, and God is not pleased because the only thing he's pleased with is the righteousness of his son. So God takes the righteousness of his son, and he makes it a part of, he makes it a covering onto uh, the, the person who he saves. So that's what God does. God imputes righteousness into a person. He declares them righteous, and then he imputes that righteousness into them. God also adopts. God doesn't leave a believer in the, the former kingdom, the former family that they were a part of and when they were born. Rather, God adopts a child into his own kingdom. And adoption is the process, again, by which a child is made to be a part of a family to which they don't naturally belong. It's a process that doesn't involve the child. The child isn't a willing participant in it. God does it. He makes them part of his family. God writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, that Paul writes that God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. So before the foundations of the world, God actually decreed that he would take a person and he would make that person a part of his own family. And he would do it according to the kind intention of his will. And he had to do it according to the kind intention of his will because of the kind of person that a person is when God adopts them. Again, it's a person who is hostile towards God. They're not subjecting themselves to the law of God because they're not even able to do so. They're an enemy of God. That is why God does this according to the kind intention of his will. It's not as if any unbeliever raises their hand and says, in my unbelief and my rebellion against you, I, I want you to adopt me because the unbeliever loves their natural born condition. So that's what God does. He takes someone who's not in his family and he makes them a part of his family. But he also gives that person union with Christ. We see that in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 7. This is the, the continuation of what God has done, where God, being rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. Now, because of his great love, with him, which is um, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive with Christ. And then notice in the, in the following verses here where you see the phrase in Christ. We were dead in our transgressions. He made us alive with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
So there's a unity, there's a oneness that the believer has with Christ, one that wasn't had before. God gives them union with Christ. God also removes the person's sin. This is another benefit. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 29. John the Baptist sees Christ approaching, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A person's sin is part of them. It's part of who they are as an unbeliever. But what Christ does when he goes to the cross and he dies in their place, and the work of Christ at the cross is applied to that person at regeneration, is that the sin comes out of that person. The thing that makes them offensive before God is removed, and Christ is the one who does that. And that is so sweet to think about, that the very thing that is offensive to God, the thing that is odious to God, the thing that is, is offending God is removed from us. It's taken away from us. We don't carry around the, the thing that makes us offensive to God anymore. It's like God takes it from us so that we won't offend him anymore with it. Another one of the benefits is that we're redeemed. And this is a really great word. I, I really love the word redeemed because redeemed has the idea of the purchasing of somebody away from the power of another by the payment of a price. So there's a price that's paid that purchases someone out of the power of another. Um, in unbelief, the person is enslaved to their sin. They're under the power of their sin. But redemption is, is the blood of Jesus actually purchases that person away from the power of sin into Christ. I like the verse uh, Romans chapter, um, chapter 6, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through his death, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Oh, wait, sorry, that was the next verse. Um, Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the, per- the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So Christ actually did the redeeming himself. He actually paid for the salvation of the sinner by giving his life at the cross. And he took the curse upon himself and he suffered God's wrath against that, that sin. So that is the process by which Christ is actually paying for someone and purchasing them away from their sin is he's giving his own blood, he's giving his own life. And that's a benefit because that's nothing that we could do for ourselves. But then there's reconciliation. There's the idea of being reconciled and having peace with God. We learned from earlier in, in, in the we talked this morning in Romans chapter 8 that the person has no peace with God. They're an enemy of God. And here in Romans 6, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. So God actually takes a person and brings them into a right relationship with him. Um, there's no longer an outstanding offense. The offense is removed and the person is at peace with God. They have forgiveness. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, in Christ Um, We have redemption through his blood. We've been purchased. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of God's grace. The offense is there, and it's a real offense, and it's a terrible offense. But God actually forgives the offense. He considers the offense to be void and null once he transfers um, the wrath to Christ, and Christ satisfies uh, God's wrath against that sin. God actually declares that debt and that sin forgiven and it's no longer charged against the person. So all of those things are really, really good. And the last thing we want to put in front of us that's really important for us to see here is that the old man is crucified. 
The man who was once ruled by sin is no longer ruled by sin. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, and again, Romans 6 is the chapter where it describes the new relationship that the believer has to sin. It's not as if sin is eliminated from the believer's life, but the believer has a new relationship to sin. Um, And that is that the sin that used to rule them is no longer their ruler and their master, because Christ is. Paul writes in verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. It's important to see that the old person who was a slave is no longer there. So when we talk about a person being new in Christ and having new life in Christ, we're talking about somebody who, who is no longer a slave to who they were. They're not the same person because they're not a slave to themselves. Instead, they're a slave to Christ. So those are the components. That's what God actually does to save a person. It's very comprehensive. It's very complete. It's very costly. And it must be done by God. These are things that none of us can do by ourselves. This is what we mean at Grace Bible Church when we talk about how God saves. God does all the work to save a person. But there are some benefits as well that are really important for us to grasp. Um, And there there are things that are really, really good. There are things that um, are ongoing. They're unchangeable things. They're realities, and all of them are secured by God. These are things that God does to actually save the person. And these are the things that are true about them now that they have been saved. And the first is that they're loved by God. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, So, those of you who have been chosen of God are holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion and kindness and all of these other things. But they've been chosen by God and they're holy and they're beloved. God actually loves that person. God loves that person in a way that he didn't love them before. Um, They're also indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not in a person in their unregenerate condition. But this is a true benefit for the the believer. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? So the believer has within themselves the Holy Spirit of God to convict them according to sin and righteousness and judgment. And the benefits of that are so great. The Holy Spirit is God speaking inside a person. It's God dwelling inside of a person. But not only are they indwelt by the Holy Spirit, they're also indwelt by Christ. And this is something that's really important for believers to understand. Not only is the the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit accomplished by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit stays inside that person, but Christ himself also takes up residence within that person. In Galatians 2.20, Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives within me. And the life which I live, I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So there is a a oneness with Christ because Christ is living within the person. So today, when we're driving home from Build this morning, next week when we go into our jobs and we go into whatever else it is we're doing this week, um, Christ is living within us. He's living within us because he has taken up residence in our heart. We're also a member of Christ's body. The unbeliever is not a part of the fellowship of Christ's body. Think back to your life as an unbeliever. Maybe you attended church. Maybe you didn't attend church. But one thing that was not true about you was that you were not part of this body. You were not a functioning, working, essential part of the body of Christ. And the believer is, is, becomes a part of Christ's body. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. 
we're brought into the body of Christ and we have function in the body of Christ in the same way that our body parts all have function inside of us. So every one of you who is new in Christ actually has a function in the church, in the body of Christ, that you never had outside of the body of Christ because you weren't a part of it. And we're members of one another. Um, Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, so we who are many are one body in Christ. So all of us gathered here, 40 of us or so, we're one body in Christ. And we're individually members of one another. So we have membership with one another. We have membership in one another. We have access to God in ways that we didn't have before. This is really important because the believer can now go to God in prayer and God listens and hears that. But the unbeliever, God has no obligation to hear them. I love these words in in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can go to God at any time, at any location, in any position, in any condition, with our needs, with our praise, with our thanksgiving. We have access to God. As an unbeliever, when we were hostile to God and rejecting God and enemies of God, God had no obligation to hear us. But now when we come before uh, the throne, we come through the person of Christ Jesus, uh, God hears us. He listens to us. He knows us. He already knows our circumstance. He knows whatever it is that we're bringing to him. But he uses our prayers to him to be part of his solution and his solving and his provision for us in that time of need. He actually uses our prayer to answer our prayer. Not always the way that we anticipate or the way that we ask, but he actually uses our prayer. We have access to him. Not only do we have access to God, we are under grace. We have grace not only that saves us, but we have grace that enables us to walk in newness of life. Paul says in Romans 5, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. So we're standing in grace. This is grace that allows us to walk in newness of life. God doesn't just save us and then say, go live the Christian life. He gives us the equipping. He gives us the enabling to actually do that. So that's another one of his benefits. And we're saved from his wrath. Romans 5, 9, having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Christ. We're actually saved from God's wrath. We don't have to live the rest of our lives wondering if we will have to satisfy any part of God's wrath. Every single one of your offenses against God is an infinite offense against him. But God has poured out all of his wrath on the person of Jesus Christ, and it's finished. In John 19, when Jesus said, it is finished, when all had been accomplished, what had been accomplished was the satisfaction of God's wrath against us. So that is very encouraging. That is very peaceful to know that there is not one drop of God's wrath that I will experience in this life. God may chasten me for my sin. He may grow me through discipline in different ways, but none of it will be receiving God's wrath against me because Christ did all of that on the cross. So brothers in Christ, we can take a lot of encouragement from that. And we're free from condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God doesn't declare a judgment against the believer because they're, they're part of his family, they're part of his kingdom. He's adopted them. And this is something that's very, very important that we must understand, that one of the benefits of being a believer 
is that we're not on our own. We, there is nothing in this world that can separate us from the love of Christ. Whatever our circumstances are at any place in this world, at any time in human history, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. Paul wrote in Romans 8, 38 and 39, I'm convinced that, and then he gives us a long list of things that cannot separate us from the love of Christ. And he says, death, life, angels, principalities, present things, things to come, powers, height, depth, any other created thing. There's not a single thing in this created world that can separate us from the love of Christ. So that's really, really encouraging. There's not a single thing that can separate us. So wherever we are, whatever our circumstances, and some of them are pretty bad, but God brings them to us, and none of them can separate us from God and his love for us. We have peace with God, where we used to be God's enemy, now we are, we're at peace with God. I love Romans 5.1. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And it's because we have peace with God that we can live at peace with one another. Uh, because we're at peace with God. And then God puts his Holy Spirit in us and he puts the evidence of that Holy Spirit in us. There is one fruit and it's characterized in nine manifestations. And that is something that was never in the believer prior to that time. The evidence of God's Holy Spirit within us is love. It's a love for God and it's a love for one another. It's joy. It's joy in God and who he is. It's joy in Christ. It's peace with God. It's patience with one another. It's kindness towards one another. It's loving what is good. It's being faithful. It's being gentle to one another, not relying upon your own strength, but being pleased for God to work through you. It's self-control against all of those things. There is no law. Those things were not present in any of us before God saved us. Maybe a person who's not an unbeliever is generally patient, but they're not patient because of the Holy Spirit working in them. And they're not doing it unto the Lord. They're not doing it for God's glory. And so this is something that when you see these evidences in your own life, praise God. And when you see your love for God growing, praise him, because that's an affirming truth that God has actually saved you and his Holy Spirit is in you. When you see yourself growing in self-control, when you see yourself growing in, in love for what is good, when you see yourself growing in kindness to other people, I'll praise God. That's the evidence that he gives you, that his Holy Spirit is in you and is working in you. And the last thing that's really encouraging for the believer, one of these benefits, is that their citizenship is in heaven. Their citizenship is in heaven and they're eagerly waiting for Christ to come to them. So that's something we need to remember. Um, our citizenship is not here in this world. Yes, we have trials, we have troubles, we have blessings in this world. Um, but the believer looks to eternity because Christ is coming to, to take us out of this world when he rescues the church to himself, raptures the church away. He's taking the church to be with him. Uh, so we are have a citizenship which is beyond this world. And that means that, that the events and the trials and the concerns of this world, as real as they are and as hard as they are, um, we have a life beyond this. We can look to life and joy with Christ forever beyond us. So that is how God takes the unbeliever and he makes them um, a believer. That is what God does to take the unbeliever and make himself into his, make that person a child of God. He provides components for us that we can understand how God did that. And he also provides um, benefits to us that we can realize that we can live out for the rest of our lives.
I'm realizing that we're probably a little short on time, so what we'll do is we'll pick up here and the regenerate man um, when, we, when we meet again in two weeks. But I want us to understand that, that God is kind and he is good. He takes the unbeliever and he rescues that person. And then he does a work in that person that that person could never do in themselves, draws that person into a relationship with him. He does massive, mighty things, radical things in that person's life. And then he gives them an equipping and a benefit to live out new life with him. So I'm encouraged by that. I hope you are as well. When we gather next time, we'll begin with the regenerate man. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for these men. I thank you for your goodness and your grace and your kindness to them. Lord, I praise you for who you are. Lord, I thank you that you are the God who has designed salvation that your design for salvation is a strong design, it is a good design, is an effective design, Lord, that when you save a person, you save that person to yourself permanently. I'm thankful, Lord, that you're merciful and kind, because in every one of us, you had no reason within us to save us. You saw nothing good in us. And I pray, Lord, that when uh, we walk through this day, as we walk out of here, we walk into our weekend and into our next week, we would be full of joy. We would be full of gratitude. We would be full of reverence for you because of what you have done for us. Lord, I pray for us as we think about our salvation, we think about the work that you have done, that this would make us impressed with you. This would fill us with awe and wonder and love for you because of what you have done. Lord, I pray that the result of this would be that we are men who are increasingly eager to please you because of what you have done for us. I pray for us this week, Lord, for the things that you have us to attend to, the things that you have us to walk through, that you would grant us your grace to do that. A grace that is complete, a grace that is comprehensive, Lord, draw us to yourself, and I pray in Christ's name. Amen.